Well, good morning. It's good to be with you virtually, and it's nice to be able to read the Psalms together. Psalm 89 is a really striking psalm on a lot of levels. It's a psalm for those who are caught in between the times, caught between looking back and looking forward, looking back where you can see God's faithfulness in the path, in the past, and you believe that he'll be faithful in the future, but what about right now, especially when everything doesn't look right? It's a psalm that really reflects a crisis of identity and a crisis of security. Who are we as a people? Who am I as a person? What will happen to us next? We were promised a certain life. Where is it? The psalmist in Psalm 89 knows his Old Testament really well, which really makes the psalm so beautiful, especially in those opening sections. He understands God's steadfast love. He rightly interprets God's promise to David. In those early sections of the psalm, and I encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to look at Psalm 89 and follow along as we walk through it together and as the sermon goes. It's, it's so rich with its imagery of who God is and of his love, especially in those early sections, where he goes through, like in verse 6, who can compare to the Lord? None. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also, the world and all that it is in it, you have founded them. He understands who God is. He understands the whole point of the law, of the Old Testament, of what it's been pointing to. This hope of a king who will rule with justice and with mercy, who will usher in the kingdom of God. This kingdom that is built on God's love, whose rule will never end. And then again in verse 35, it's a kingdom once for all, where he says, You have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. The psalmist understands God and he understands his Old Testament. But he also understands the times that he lives in. The time that he is in is not the time of the promise. The king is gone. The line is broken. The throne has been destroyed. The nation is no longer. The hopes of that kingdom have been dashed. If you know Israel's history, right, this is what the Old Testament outlines. God's promise to establish a kingdom, to bring them into a land, to give them a king, to give them this peace and prosperity of dwelling in a land with God, but then to lose it. And as was in the psalm, the psalmist recognizes that it was just, that if they sin, he will discipline them, and he did. He took them off into exile, and when they, ever, when they return, they will never have a king again the way that they were hoping. There's no misunderstanding the circumstances that the author is in. He clearly looks around and says, this is not good. Lord, this is not what you promised. The psalmist also clearly understands the characters at work in the story. The choice of pronouns throughout 89 is really striking. It echoes Psalm 88 in that he blames God for everything that's happening. You have cast off and rejected. You have renounced the crown. You have breached the walls. He sees that the protagonist in the story of creation isn't himself. He sees that the protagonist, this hope, is really the promised king. 
Because as he blames God, it's you have rejected him, not us. You have breached his walls, not our walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. There's no complaining about what God has done to the author or even to the nation. Rather, the author rightly sees that their hopes rest on this king. And then the psalm ends with his appeal to God in those final verses. How long, how long until you make things right? How long until you deliver on your promises, God? And then in verse 47, there's probably one of the more intimate of the verses in this one that really connects the author. Remember me. Remember how short my time is. I don't have that many days left. Remember me, Lord. Let me see your kingdom come. Let me see this promised king that you have promised. Psalm 89 really holds this tension together. This tension of, on the one hand, a certainty of God's love in the past, along with a security and a hope for the future, but then with the insecurities and the uncertainty of right now. Psalm 89 really speaks to the uncertainty and the insecurity that all of us feel and that all of us face, both individually and corporately. We all go through times like this. And of course, obviously right now is one of those times where we're all experiencing insecurity, where we're all experiencing a level of uncertainty on an individual level and on a corporate level as a people, where the promises that we've received don't match the reality that we experience. We all have a different range of experiences. I guess one of the most striking things of our time that we're in right now is just how our sense of security and confidence varies day by day, hour by hour, it seems like minute by minute. This tension of living right now, in between the times, where we experience both incredible joy but also heartbreaking pain and sorrow. Where we have the desire to see the fulfillment of God's promises during our lifespan, right now, where we yearn to experience the fullness of life that God has promised, the prosperity, the blessing that he has been promising throughout his word for us. We long for it. And we're reminded more and more how short our days really are. I want my life to matter. I want to be fulfilled, to be secure, to see your promised Messiah. We really join that psalmist in his cry for the Lord to remember him. We live restless and insecure, wanting more, yearning to experience security, yearning to experience true rest. And Psalm 89, along with all of the Psalms, is really calling us to a faithful life now of what it looks like. It gives us a picture, it gives us a template, it gives us words for how to live now 
in between the times, in between the times of promise and power and of what is to come. And the first thing we really see within Psalm 89 that he's calling us to as a church and as individuals is a profound level of honesty. The Psalms are beautiful in that. There are very few places in Scripture where we find such raw honesty from an author, which speaks to where we are. The honesty where we can actually see the time for what it is. We can look around and not be content. There's a danger of being overly comfortable and content with the circumstances of not being able to honestly see the pain and the suffering around us, to not see sin, to not be bothered by the state that we're in. The psalmist is honest, and he calls us to be honest. We should have a level of discontent with the state of things right now. We should be able to honestly compare the kingdom that we've been promised by God with the kingdom we are actually living in. And to despair, to not be satisfied with what we have, to not be satisfied with the way things are run, to not be satisfied with what we have in our lives. It doesn't mean we're not thankful for the blessings and the promises of God to us, but it does mean that we see things for what they are, that we honestly see the world around us, the good, the common grace, and also the brokenness and the sin which then creates in us an impatience. The psalm really models this, where the psalmist is honest. He's honest with God, with who God is, with God's promises, and also with that reality of life, that this is not God's full kingdom, that this is not what he promised, which then gives him the permission to be impatient with God. So draws us to be impatient, to be restless, a desire to want God to deliver on his promises. Holding God accountable for the words that, he've said, that he has said, the promises that he's made to his people and to us. There's a boldness in the Psalms that we really lack in our lives of calling God out, of asking him to deliver, of yearning and being restless for that coming kingdom and for that blessing and prosperity that he has promised us. So Psalm 89, as well as all of the Psalms and the writings, the wisdom literature, really calls us to a restless, faithful life now while we live, where we can be honest with ourselves and our culture. We don't have to be content with the state of things, where we don't have to turn a blind eye to our sin and to the sins of others, where we take our restlessness and impatience with the way things are and we bring them to God. Asking God to remember us, to remember his promises. And having this faithful confidence in God that we can cry out to him, that we can take to him our restlessness and our fears and our insecurity because of his steadfast love, which we know is true, even if we don't see the changes around us. What makes this so hard for us isn't the feelings. The feelings of Psalm 89 are pretty universal. Like we were saying, all of us have a level of feeling 
insecure and restless, especially now. But even before and certainly after, those feelings of restlessness and insecurity will always dog us. And in fact, we should feel restless and insecure. The more we know about God and the more we know about this world, we know that there is nothing in this world that will ever satisfy us. There's nothing in this world that will ever make me safe. So what we do with these feelings of restlessness and insecurity is really the question. And I think we see a wide range of responses, but I think we can generally categorize them into a few responses, at least that I do, and I think others do as well. I think the first response we have to this restlessness, this feeling of insecurity, of not being safe, of not having the fulfillment that we've been yearning for or been promised, the first way we handle this is that we make meaning for ourselves. We try to create our own security. We feel the reality of that psalmist's cry, remember how short my time is. This could just be a middle-aged man speaking here, but where you start to really recognize that I do not have many days left, it hits home. And when we feel that reality of the shortness of our life, it instills in us, I better do something with my life. I'm going to live a life of meaning and fulfillment. So we take that desire for fulfillment, that desire for security, that restlessness, and we work. We build our own kingdoms. But that's not the promise of the Old Testament. That's not that prospering that's been promised to us. The author of the Psalms doesn't blame God for destroying his kingdom because he knows that there is no life that we could ever build that would be capable of giving us fulfillment. That there is no family great enough to fill that hole. There is no career secure enough. There is no 401k that is big enough. No amount of travel extensive enough to satisfy, to wash away the pain and the reality of this world. The blessed man and woman in the Psalms is the one who meditates on the law, whose hope is in the promised Savior and his kingdom, not their own kingdom. This prevents us from distracting and medicating ourselves. Because in this first response, where we just get busy building our own kingdoms, we're too distracted by our own kingdoms to actually even desire God's kingdom, to even see the world honestly for what it is, because we can only see our own small world, our own kingdoms that we've been actively working to build and trying to protect. We can't honestly evaluate our lives or what's around us, leading us to be overly content with our life, working too hard to build up our own kingdoms and our own sense of security that will never satisfy. The second response that we go to with this feeling of security or the need for security with this feeling of restlessness is also we go to blame and complain to others. We blame and we demand from others to deliver on their promises. We can honestly see and feel the insecurity. We feel anxious and restless and instead of turning and wrestling with God, 
which the psalmist directs us to do. We turn on each other. We blame everyone around us for not living up to their promises, for letting us down. We tear down our authorities, our churches, our bosses, our spouses, our children. We turn even on ourselves. They have failed to provide us the kingdoms that they promised. Who you blame reflects who you really believe has the power over your life. It's not wrong to feel insecure and restless, to want God to fulfill his promises is what we were made for, to desire that prosperity and the fulfillment that's been promised through the Psalms. What matters is what we do with these feelings. Do we turn to God with them and look to him to fulfill us, or do we turn to ourselves and to others? Do we see ourselves as fulfilling these promises, or do we trust that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises? The first option is the way of the Psalms, giving our insecurities and our longings, our restlessness to God. The second is sin. Our efforts at the building of our own kingdoms for our own security stunts our ability to actually see the world for what it is, to empathize with suffering to see sin, to be broken, and to long for the world that is to come. Our blaming and complaining everyone around us builds within us a self-righteousness that prevents us from experiencing the grace and mercy of God and giving that grace and mercy to others. In both situations, we don't long for God's kingdom the way the psalmist does. We long for our own kingdoms. And we grieve when our kingdoms fall. So how do we make this move? How do we go from being restless and impatient for our own kingdoms to be established to being properly restless and impatient for God's kingdom to be established in our lives and in the world? Well, the psalmist provides the answers, as does all of Scripture, For the psalmist, for this author of Psalm 89, for him, what girds all of it and holds the whole psalm together, this tension, is knowing the steadfast love of God. The author spends the majority of the psalm worshiping and rightly reflecting on God's steadfast love and promise. Everything in our lives changes. There is nothing in my life that is steadfast. Certainly not my feelings, my circumstances, my emotions, how I respond. What could possibly ground us as individuals and as a community and give us hope? God's steadfast love for us. Which is why the Psalms have been calling us over and over to reflect and meditate on God's law. To remember who he is to understand rightly the Pentateuch, the law, the Old Testament, which has always been about God's love and faithfulness to his people, despite their sin, despite their circumstances, his promise to provide a Savior who will put everything right. This is the gospel. The whole New Testament is answering that longing of the psalmist 
showing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. When we remind ourselves of God's love, when we see ourselves as part of this bigger story, the story of redemption that God has been working out from before the creation of the world, where God is the hero and we are not, where the ending of the story is secure and is coming, when we see and meditate on Jesus Christ, the long-awaited and rightful king coming into this world, suffering with us on our behalf, securing for us a home and a name, conquering sin and death, giving us a foretaste, a picture of what is to come for us, this resurrected life, we start to have a more holistic and proper perspective of ourselves, more like the psalmist does. We can see that, in fact, our time is short. So what is it that we want to have happen during our brief life on this earth? What really matters? It changes what we long for as we see Christ, as we see his kingdom. It changes what we're restless for, for what we ask God for. The steadfast love of God anchors us. It becomes the mast we lash ourselves to in the storm. It's the one true constant in our world, which gives us the hope that we need that one day we will fully experience the security and joy that we long for. And it gives us the godly impatience to long for that kingdom now to not be content with these false kingdoms that we build up, to ask for the kingdom of God to come, to demand the kingdom of God to become a more greater reality in my own life and in the lives of others. As we speak the gospel to ourselves and to each other, reminding ourselves of who God is, of what he has done, and what he will do for us, we see this world and ourselves more clearly, more honestly. Our own kingdoms begin to fade. We see the needs around us more and more. We understand what it means to live in this tension, to live between these times, these times of intense joy and also of intense pain, where we can hold those two things in balance, because we have the love of Christ. Where we eagerly look for and pray for the coming of the kingdom, which means we begin to work towards that kingdom. We pray for that kingdom. We, learn, we long and hope and yearn for the coming of the kingdom. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We worship you for who you are. As the Psalms declare, there is none like you that has your power, your glory. There is none who can save us except for you. And who are we that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die for us? Who are we 
a people who are faithless towards you, that you would be so faithful towards us. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you have made, for the way that you have fulfilled those promises time and time again, and how you have fulfilled your promises in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we long for the day when your kingdom will fully come. Lord, we have a confidence in your kingdom because of your son, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, we just ask that you will continue to strengthen in us a desire for you and a desire for that day when you will come. Lord, help us to look to you and to see you as our only hope and as the true source of our security and of our rest. Lord, help us not to be satisfied too easily with the things of this world, but to turn to you, to cry out to you in our everyday longings and insecurities, and to seek refuge and strength from you. Lord, we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.